Hello. Hello. That was good. That was in sync. It was. Welcome to the Lanky Guys, everybody. Thank you. Good, good to be here. It's uh, I'm, you're not talking to me, are you? No, no, I'm talking to them. I'm talking to them, quote unquote. All of them. My name's Those Father people. Peter Musset, and welcome to the Word on the Hill. My name is Scott Powell, and we are officially the Lanky Guys. We are, and um, and we're we're coming to you from the two hills of Colorado. The word on two of the hills. Two of the hills. Of, because of we have many hills in Colorado. We're on two of them. Yes, we are. What hill? The two hills implies that we're in the same. There's only two hills in the state, <laughs> which is disingenuous, especially to our, uh, our tourism board. <laughs> so what now? What, what, hi- what hill are you on, Scott? Well, I'm actually in a valley. I'm in, I'm in the Vale Valley right now. Oh. Um, buried in books, trying to uh, finish my dissertation. Far away from the cares of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Annie, Annie forced me to come away by myself to a quiet place, to a deserted <laughs> place for a while um, so that I could, I could write my little bottom off to finish this dissertation so that she doesn't have to deal with it anymore. And none of us do. Yeah, that's and awesome. Father Peter was more than happy to oblige because everyone is counting on me to get this thing done so I can do the job that I was actually hired to do, which is be a doctor. Yeah. But as my children like to point out, not a real doctor. Not a real doctor. They always point that out. Do they? <laughs> they're like, like not a doctor who helps people. The <laughs> other kind. <laughs> <laughs> doctor Laura Zapapas always makes fun of me for not being a doctor who helps people. <laughs> but I help people in other ways, or I will. Yeah, absolutely. So it's still, a, it's still a good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have enough schooling to be a doctor, but I'm not really there a you doctor. Go. You know, no. But you're a doctor in my heart. Hey, thanks. thanks. Doctor of my heart. Doctor, no. I'm a doctor of the weird. soul, is what I. And what really hill are you on, Father Peter? I'm on the hill in Boulder, Boulder, oh, the same hill. Colorado. The the same hill. The home, that, yeah, home base, home base, home turf, yeah, home field. It's beautiful. Well, today we are in the twentieth uh, Sunday in ordinary time. At least I hope I am, because that's what I studied. That's what. Did I study that? Yeah, I studied that. <laughs> you betcha. You betcha. Dude, there's you that betcha. There's that moment where you really studied the wrong thing, which is a terrible feeling. When you said it, I had that moment of fear. <laughs> and you're like, no. Oh, we're good. No, Nine, we're good, though. 9,000 people are going to judge me for my incompetence. Oh, and those are only the ones that are listening on the podcast. Everybody else is judging me for other reasons. <laughs> no, well, that was self-deprecating and, and not necessary. Um, we are still in the, uh, so every, every one of the readings for the last few weeks has revolved around the bread of life discourse in Jesus, in John six, where Jesus is talking about his bread being food. So this is the second to last Sunday that we're going to be talking about the bread of life discourse and having all these readings kind of revolve around it. So, um, live it up because it's not going to last very long, Father Peter. Okay. I'm, I'm in man. Like bring it on. But I do think, uh, yeah, everything sort of revolves around that and i think oh gosh i'm actually really excited to talk about the first reading and i hope all the thoughts that are jumbled in my head actually make any sense so well normally they they end up becoming coherent through this beautiful podcast they sometimes do yeah well they usually do our first reading today is from proverbs chapter 9 um verses 1 through 6 now proverbs is that apocryphal no no it's not apocryphal no 
No, it's part of the wisdom literature, but it's not properly speaking apocryphal. So, so Protestant and Jewish Bibles all have proverbs okay. in them. Sweet. But it is part of the wisdom literature, which makes it problematic mm. for reasons we'll talk about in a moment. Um, okay, so yeah, first reading from Proverbs. Our second reading, our second reading, our psalm is actually the same exact psalm that we had last week with some different uh, verses thrown in there. So we're still, like last week, in Psalm 34, but now we're in verses 2 through 3, 4 through 5, and 6 through 7. Awesome, and then we're making a jump into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 20. <laughs> we are making a jump. And then uh, we're making a leaping bound into John for our gospel, John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. That was very Song of Songs of you to like throw in leaping bounds, you know? Cause yeah, that's not what I think of when I think of Song of Songs, but that's fine. That's Well, I mean, you know, hark my lover comes leaping. Leaping and stags and such. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Peering through lattices and stuff. oh you rat okay so okay so um our first readings proverbs man that's the one that i i was most intrigued by and and Mm. as i was studying like i i uh i actually became fascinated with the um with the uh, the the two moments about building the house because it's uh-huh. it's actually two Hebrew words one of them is actually digging out and the other one is is building up so it says it, wisdom what's is built the digging out um, the digging out is uh, oh you mean the word can be used in both ways no no it's is that what it's two words oh so which is just really it's yeah. it's a really interesting thing to be able to have it's the interesting she has built and she has hewn so it's um um oh bonta beta hosba <coughs> are you reading in hebrew or in the in the greek septuagint hebrew oh hebrew yeah i went i went to the hebrew because i was like oh I, I don't know it was just it was just really interesting because to have i, I like architectural things but let's get into well, the context i want to know why well, this is significant Okay, then then you'll love this. And we've I, we've talked about a concept that I want to bring up um, probably a long time ago. It might have been years ago, um, whenever the last time we were in the wisdom literature. But, okay, quick word about Proverbs. Um, just like the Psalms were never meant to be, like, you know, sat down and read straight through. Right. Um, the Proverbs are, are, are kind of like that. So the, the book of Proverbs, it's just literally a big, huge collection of wise sayings. Like you wouldn't read through a quotation book that you have on your shelf, so that it's the same kind of thing. They're they're meant to be kind of picked up here and there and pulled and and you know not like literally sit down and, and rotely read through. Um, the thing about so it, it's what we call wisdom literature, which there's a lot of wisdom literature and wisdom. This actually came up in uh, some of my dissertation work yesterday. But wisdom literature, there's been all sorts of controversy around the wisdom literature because. Um, for all of the, you know, when scholars look at the whole Bible and try to find, one of the big things in scholarship is trying to find, like, the one theme or the one idea that sort of unites the whole Hebrew Bible together. And a lot of us sort of in, in our school of thought, Father Peter, we, we like this this idea of salvation history, that the theme that unites the whole Bible together is this, this continuous narrative of God saving his people, and that's all leading up and, and climaxing in, in uh, Christ. You know, others have talked about, Scott Hahn talks about the covenant being kind of the unifying theme. Some have talked about law or grace or these things. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's and, there's so many ways to kind of hang your yeah. hat to try to find an organizing principle, but... Um, I but the thing that's 
oh. salvation history really is absolutely rocking as far as an ability to trace the blessing through time into ultimately worldwide blessing and and starting out and i mean it's really is a mix of covenants though i mean covenants and salvation yeah, history but, go hand in hand and they're all in there and the laws and grace it's all it's all in there but the problem with that is that um the wisdom books don't fit and any any of the major themes that scholars have tried to bring out the wisdom literature just doesn't fit into those like you can't really it's hard to kind of trace the story of salvation history or the covenants or anything like that in the book of Proverbs or in Wisdom of Solomon or in Ecclesiastes. It just doesn't quite fit. And so genre-wise, nobody has quite known what to do with it. And actually, Proverbs and, and Wisdom and those kind of books, they span a lot of different kinds of uh, genres. And so um, it's, it's really hard to kind of speak about them in any academic way because nobody knows exactly what to do with them. Um, the thing that I think is cool and sort of the, what I think is the Catholic understanding of these books is that they're so powerful partially because the wisdom literature transcends any of those themes that we can sort of want to pigeonhole things into. Um, it goes, it's outside of the narrative of salvation history. Wisdom transcends it. Um, in a very beautiful way. It transcends merely the covenants uh, because it goes outside and beyond and sort of above all of those things. And then we can get insight into those things. But the thing about wisdom and Proverbs especially, Proverbs loves to personify the idea of wisdom. It loves to make wisdom into a person. And if you read through Proverbs and especially wisdom, um, all the ways that the wisdom literature personifies wisdom fits almost exactly with what Jesus Christ will eventually become incarnate as. And if you co go back, the fathers of the church love doing this. They loved going back, taking the person of Jesus, and overlaying him on the personified wisdom throughout the wisdom literature. And they're like, oh, this is Jesus. All of the wisdom literature is speaking about and pointing ahead toward Jesus, um, which is really beautiful. Um, except, for, except for the fact that Whenever it's a she, yeah, it's a she, and I've I've also heard it, though is the personification of the Holy Spirit, which is so so like this is the thing is I get really confused in the midst of that like because because well, you, you look and you say wisdom is built her house she has set up her seven columns and you're like yep. oh look the sacraments yeah this is great <laughs> I love it or or right. you know we we could see that she's set up a covenant you know the yes. the, the notion of, of the of the family house and and then uh -huh. the meal and all these sorts of things but the the she I mean. A lot of times people are trying to find because God is not gendered. Right, exactly. We we but but we have but our language is gendered and so being able to understand and penetrate some part of the mystery of uh, of who God is, we do use gendered language. Yeah, and, absolutely. But then this is confusing cuz so that's why I would normally just go like, "Oh, this is this is the Holy Spirit. This is actually what we're trying to do." But whereas you're saying the fathers of the church are just are like more like, "No, this is Jesus. This is Well, in, in yeah, I mean it, you it's not an either or necessarily. You know what I mean? I mean, I think I think you definitely see the Holy Spirit in there. This is where we don't want to this is where again, this is the exact conversation where scholars get frustrated and want to be like, "No, I want a one-to-one -one comparison. I want something that's exact, that's not sort of ambiguous and mystical, which is what the wisdom literature is." Because yeah, Jesus is not. So that doesn't exactly work, but it still sort of reflects these things. So it's not a one-to-one. -one. Um 
Yeah, so we can just leave that. Be that as it may, um, it, it does point ahead to the God that we will see revealed in a unique way in the New Testament. We can say that much. And we see God revealed in the Holy Spirit in a unique way in the New Testament. Um, the Holy Spirit really really manifests himself in a profound way only after Jesus' death right? Um, and resurrection. I mean, he's, he's obviously present throughout the whole story of salvation history, but it's intimately tied to the incarnation of Jesus. But all that being said, the other thing I just want to point out, and we've talked about this before. Um, do you know, what the, the, you know what the Greek word for wisdom is, right? Logos? No, that's word. Um, word uh, the word, so think so of the word Sophia, philosophy. Sophia. Yeah, Sophia, right? So we all know, a lot of people know Sophia is the word for wisdom, right? Philo, Sophia, the love of wisdom. Right. But remember, this was originally written in Hebrew. So do you know what the Hebrew word for wisdom is? Um, no. Because we've talked about this and you loved this. So the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, chokmah. Chokmah. Um, and chokmah doesn't mean, wi- so th- th- it's, not a, it's not a very Greek word. The Greeks loved categories and, you know, this is, this is abstractions and things like that. The, Gre- the Greeks loved to sit around and talk philosophy and talk abstract and talk metaphysics and all that stuff. The Hebrews didn't like that. For the Hebrews, they wanted something that was concrete and tangible and just made sense. So the word chokmah doesn't mean sitting around and philosophizing about abstractions. The word chokmah literally means a skill or a craftsman. So when we talk about wisdom building a house, so it's not a textbook knowledge, but an artisan, right? A a, a metalsmith or, or a woodworker or... A, an artist of some kind would be said to have chokmah. He's got skill that can actually produce something beautiful. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thought, especially for those of us who are getting somewhat useless liberal arts degrees, to think <laughs> of that idea of the liberal arts being a skill, though. Yes. And actually having a role that, that this is something that is tangible that we actually need. We need people like that to actually make the world work. We need people who are sitting and thinking about the whys of the world, not just the how, but that it is actually a skill that is tangible that actually contributes something. Um, but that was the Hebrew understanding, that this idea of wisdom is not just something that you just sort of have and you sit around and think about, but you actually have to work toward it and study and and practice it. And the more you practice wisdom, the more you um, do uh, unite yourself with God in terms of wise things, then that's a great good. And the thing that's, the, again, Hebrews love the concrete. They don't love the abstract. And so what you see in all of the wisdom literature, and specifically in Proverbs, is that God, God's wisdom is revealed. Well, I'll ask you. Do you know that, do you know where in the wisdom literature it says God's wisdom is best revealed because we want to sit the, in our part of the world and the way that we're, de- we're designed or we're trained to think. We think that we can tap into God's wisdom by sitting around and meditating and thinking and praying, all of which are very good things. And we should spend as much time in prayer as possible. But when we think about prayer and meditation, we think of sitting by ourselves quietly in a room someplace. Well, yeah, but that's not really the Hebrew understanding. I think it's I, th- the, I think it's more like uh, the, like uh, for the the Boulderite particularly is so- yes. Psalm 19. The heavens mm. proclaim the glory of God and the firmament shows forth the work of his hand. Da- uh, heavens are telling the glory of God <laughs> and all creation is shouting for joy. Come dance in the forest okay, anyway. and pee in yeah, the yeah, field. Yeah, 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 come on, yeah, come on. Yeah, you said me up for that, dude. Th- I know I did. I didn't mean to. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So for the wisdom literature, God's wisdom is best revealed in God's craftsmanship, in his artistry, in what he has made. 
And the other reason that, um, well, people don't know how to deal with the wisdom literature is that one of the themes that runs through it is that the good will be rewarded and the evil will be punished oftentimes through creation itself, that the world is designed in such a way that there are actually natural consequences for good and for evil, that the world is built and designed and crafted in such a way, even on a physical level, that reflects, well, really it's the idea that God's wisdom is reflected in the way things are. God's wisdom is shown by the things that are. I'm, I'm in Vail, which is one of the most beautiful places in the country. And I get to, you know, whenever I'm sick of my writing and my eyes are glazing over, I can step out and look at these beautiful, profound mountains and peaks all around me. And that actually helps inspire me to start writing again, to start working again. And, and creation's actually designed that way. We see God's wisdom through the things that are. And that's why when we have this particular passage, it's, you know, it sounds kind of weird and obscure and there's all sorts of things we can pull up at the seven columns or the seven sacraments and all these things, but it's all about very physical thing. Wisdom has built her house. She set up a seven columns. She dressed her meat. She mixed her wine. She spread out her table. There's food. There is drink. There is buildings. There's physicality. So what is wisdom doing? Wisdom is building a house. She's setting a table. She's preparing food. She's getting ready for people to come to a vast feast. Right. So, I mean, Again, you know, the fathers of the church looked at this and were like, oh my gosh, here is wisdom who has built a house. We have Jesus who is the word through which all things were created, according to John. Now setting a table with food to give to us. Jesus, who is the word through whom all things were created, is um, setting this table for us to eat out of, setting, you know, the sacraments and giving these things. Yeah, so I, I mean, yeah, the 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 parallels are huge between you know Jesus is setting out food, giving us this food, which is why the church in her wisdom chose the readings this week. Wisdom, who has built this house, is now setting a table, getting ready to give all of us food. It's and I mean, I think the connections to the the gospel are huge there. Yeah, they're the best. I mean, like precisely, the precisely. Well, this is actually sometimes I take weird issue with translations because because <laughs> oh, yeah. in verse four it says let let whoever is naive turn in here. It just just huh. just say like foolish. I, I don't know what what does your translation oh. say. Uh, uh, simple. The NAB uses simple. Yeah, and so it's one of those things where it's like it's like no, just say foolish. Like let whoever's foolish <laughs> turn in here. To those who lack any sense, I say, come eat food and drink the wine I have mixed. Because partly w- what the thing is is that th- there's a tangible, substantial experience of what wisdom yes. really is. It's it's not yes. just it's not just some sort of like mind trip. No, this is actually a real existential experience of what is supposed to be. And so, Ooh. I let's hang on to that. I, I love that what, what you just said. Let whoever is foolish turn in and come and eat the food and the drink. Yes, I want to hang on to that because that's I think applicable for the gospel. Okay. So wisdom is saying it's commanding. It's giving the imperative. If you're foolish, if you don't get it, come and eat the food and drink the wine. Yes, and, okay, and so it'll we'll transform you. Okay, so then let's go to yeah. the psalm. And the Psalms, again, it's the exact same Psalm that we had last week. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. It's, it's again, this imperative that, look, how do you know God? How do we come closer to him? And this is, this is just great for us who we want to intellectualize everything. I'm sitting here surrounded by books writing a dissertation, but <laughs> we want to intellectualize everything. And we want 
to be able to pigeonhole and explain and be able just to put everything in a nutshell and wrap it in our little minds and, and be able to, to hang our hats on this. And what the scriptures are saying is, no, just go out into the world that God created and taste and see his goodness. Eat of what he's given you. Drink of what he's given I think some of the holiest people, you know, I'm getting the stinking doctorate. Um, you've got years and years of schooling. I know so many of our listeners are very, very smart people. And we all know that some of the holiest people on earth are some of the least educated, you know? I've, um, yes. A, a good friend of mine just came back from the slums of Calcutta, you know, where, where people are living on the streets. And I'm, some of the holiest people on earth can be found there. They don't know what the hypostatic union is or don't know the word transubstantiation or any of these things, but they know because they've tasted and they've seen the goodness of God. Yeah, the other day this girl Jordan came and she had been inspired by going to church and she was like, she she saw one of her friends make the sign of the cross and she, she would have mm. her make the sign of the cross. She says, whenever you do that, you're so cool. She just really, yeah. There was something about the the wow. identification with the cross, and and so oh, that was happened when she was thirteen. She's eighteen now, and she wow. was like she she just went through a hard time, and she started going to the Catholic Church, and it was just absolutely moving to her. And she wow. she came, and so she went through Symbolon, the RCA, oh. just on her own, just because she was like, I want to I want to be Catholic, and 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 wow. And as we were talking, I actually asked about the hypostatic union. I said, you know. <laughs> Of course you did. I said, I said, so, 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 talk to me about the two natures of Christ, like, uh, like of of the divine and the human. And she started mm. talking, and she didn't have all of the like the the mechanics down of talking about yeah. Jesus's humanity and divinity, but she, but she saw it, and it was it was tangible and real and important to her mm. that he was both, and and it was like yeah. it, and and this kind of like simple grasping because she, uh, of of the truth, it would like. Yes. Uh, she she had this profound experience and she's like i just want to be unified with that i want to mm. i want to actually be with the lord and in, in in that capacity and i was like well you want to come into the church on thursday <laughs> come into the church on thursday yeah i was like i was like she's demonstrated up. she's demonstrated faith she believes she knows the creed she has a awesome. great moral life i mean it was like it was like one of those moments to where like I mean, she was wow. like really prepared, actually, and, and also the archbishop recommended her to me. So that, that's awesome. Yeah, that's always safe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I, but it, it's it's that moment to where it's like you, when you when you experience and you taste the goodness and see the goodness of the Lord, you just want an even more, uh, an even deeper experience of that in your life. But that's the beauty of being Catholic in particular because we have these things that are physical and visible and tangible. Again, she saw somebody making the sun, doing something with their body, and she was moved by that. Absolutely. There's something to that which is physical because we're physical creatures. We're incarnate beings. We're not just in our minds. Right. And, and there's just something beautiful about that that I didn't get when I was in the Protestant world. Right. So – um, that, I think, is a great segue into the second reading uh, from Ephesians 5. Again, we've talked about Ephesians, the, the context of Ephesus. This is you know crazy amounts of New Age and occult kind of stuff going on there. And into the midst of that, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, watch carefully how you live, not as foolish persons, but as wise. Not as foolish persons, but as wise. And if you take that instruction in conjunction with the first reading... What does it mean to live as a wise person as a part of as as uh, opposed to a foolish person, according to the wisdom literature? 
Uh, to see and taste the goodness of God? Yeah, just to see things as they are. Yes. I think, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, I, I just think it adds sort of a, a neat level of meaning. I mean, is there these words we can throw around? He's like, don't be foolish, be wise. Well, okay, what, is that, what does that mean? And we talk all the time in Catholic circles about how do we discern spirits and try to, to work out, you know, I mean, even our moral questions in our world, there's so many things like, oh my gosh, what do I what do? I do? Who do I support? Do I, do I vote for this person? Do I do that thing? Is the church okay with this? What is the church saying? This bishop says that, that priest says something else. What do I do? And part of the, the issue of discernment is simply learning to see reality. Yes. And the people in Ephesus are very caught up in non-realities. They're very caught up in, well, a lot of false spiritual realities. Getting drunk on wine and going Absolutely. into debauchery and not being filled with the spirit. Yes. That is foolish. But they're actually given this opportunity to turn from that to that which is wise. What is wise? Tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord. Right. Because it is real. And, and the beauty of what Paul is saying to this community that's, that's really living in a tough culture is it's possible. And again, for you and me living in Boulder, Colorado, that's a tough culture to be in. It's good news to hear that for people like us, look, it's possible to live this holy life, to recognize truth, to live it out, not to be a jerk about it, but to to live that out in a real way because we can tap into the wisdom of God, which is present in reality, which is present in the things that are. Yes. And we can discern that and we can live that out. Which is a great way to actually enter into the gospel because... Indeed. How do we actually enter into the most real, the super abundant life that is promised? And and it really comes from the Eucharistic life. Jesus says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live from heaven. You will live forever in the bread that I will... Oh my gosh. Are you laughing at the, I keep, I can't hear myself in my headphones. And so I keep, I'm sorry. I'm laughing at you a little bit. That's okay. The other people are here too. No, they're happy with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I, I think it's interesting. I just want to make a note of the tenses that Jesus uses here, which I'm just, I'm fascinated by. He, he uses first the present tense. He says, look, I am the living bread. He just, he just finished talking about how, Remember, the people came to him. They were just fed in the wilderness. The 5,000 were just fed on all this stuff. They're flipping out. They're like, we want more. We love you. And he's like, no, you're just in it for the bread. You're just in it to get your tummies filled. And they're like, well, Moses gave everybody bread in the desert. What can you do? And he's like, Moses gave bread, and everybody still died. Like, that wasn't the supernatural bread that I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you something so much bigger than that. And then he says, I am, present tense, I am the living bread. You're looking at it. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. So in other words, he says, I am the bread, and I will at some point in the future give it to you. And I kind of like the idea that what he's doing is kind of whetting their appetites. Pardon the weird pun. Yeah. But he's saying, I'm not giving it to you yet. Right now, I'm actually just trying to prepare you for it because they're obviously not quite ready because the fact that even the ones who don't leave him, even the disciples that stick around are still utterly confused. But he's saying, look, you're looking at something that you've never seen before. I am bread from heaven. And and the beauty of the Eucharist and the way that our sacraments work. I mean, again, the, the fact that in God's wisdom, he's revealing himself in the things that already are for every culture and every civilization, for all of humanity, what does bread represent? Life. 
bread is life. Every culture, everywhere in the world, in every time in history, bread has always represented life. So what does God do? He says, okay, I'm going to take this thing that for every civilization in human history has always represented life. And I'm going to take this thing that already meant life to people, and I'm going to infuse it with supernatural life. And I will become, I will make this bread the thing that it has already represented. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. But he takes the things that already are, and he makes them divine in a certain sense. He makes these signs into the realities that they symbolized. Mm. Am I saying that right? I'm, I'm being very, I'm trying to be careful not to speak heresy in the way that I word that. Yeah, no, you're, but, you're saying right. But it's one of these things that it doesn't kind of, the Eucharist doesn't really come out of nowhere. It, he takes something that has always, I mean, water, which has always been used and always been seen as this sort of sign of new life, as a sign of cleansing, often as a sign of fear and death. Yes. And he uses it to become the thing that it already symbolized, to become the means to this new life and this cleansing of sin. God takes the things that are, and he transforms them into his own divine life, which I think is just beautiful. So he's prepping them for this. He's like, I'm the bread. And, and then the next thing that happens is the Jews quarreled among themselves. Now, last week, I think it was last week, they started murmuring to themselves. They were kind of grumbling and complaining. Now the murmuring has taken a step up to quarreling. And their murmuring has turned to fighting. And if you remember, the, the read, I think it was the second reading from last week, um, in Ephesians, Paul said to put aside all of those, these angry words and this malice and this fury and all, all this stuff. Because one thing, le little things lead to big things. Their murmuring, their grumbling is now leading to fighting. Right. And I, I don't know. I, I, I like the, well, I don't like it, but I'm fascinated by the escalation of yeah, it. Yeah, the progression. And now they're getting very vocal about it. Now, instead of just mumbling, you know, under their breath about Jesus, now they're just kind of loudly complaining and yelling about him. How is this guy going to give us flesh to eat? Who do you think you are? But then he steps up and he reiterates exactly mm -hmm. with supreme and precise clarity exactly what he's trying to communicate to them. Yes. My, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats this and drinks this remains in me and I in him. They're like, they're, I mean, wh why, why were the kosher <laughs> laws in place? Yeah. You, you didn't drink the blood of anything ever, period. Because drinking the blood, you were actually, tr you were taking the life to yourself. And so... Well, I'll, I'll even take that a step further. There's um, the, the idea of eating flesh and drinking blood. There's a couple places, especially in Deuteronomy and Ezekiel, that refers to brutalities of war. So the foreign nations want to eat our flesh and drink our blood. And it, it's the idea of destroying somebody or, or brutally in this warfare. So Jesus is taking actually an idiom that exists and he's totally transforming it. I'm not going to brutalize you. I'm not going to destroy you. I want to actually bring you back to life because you've already been brutalized and destroyed. We live in a world full of people who have been brutalized in a lot of ways. And he's going to use that to bring us, he wants to bring us back to life. And it brings us back to what we said in the first reading. If you're foolish, if you feel like you're not, I mean, all of these people are foolish. They're brutalized, they're confused, they're looking for a leader, they're wandering around in the desert. And Jesus is saying, look, I am what you're looking for. And it's precisely what the first reading was saying. If you're foolish, if you're simple, come and eat the bread. Jesus is saying, you guys are looking for a leader. You're looking for something to raise your eyes to. Come and eat what I'm going to give you, and I'm going to give you new life. But the foolish can't leave their foolishness. They want to stay within it. Yes. 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I think we have to remember Colossians in the midst of this too, because what is Jesus doing is he's putting on parade demons and death itself. So, oh, yeah. so like, w what exactly is he doing in his crucifixion? Is he's showing forth how this is really death, but that he yeah. is he is supreme over death and transforms his flesh that was that was seemingly brutalized and and and. Um, yes. and destroyed Ooh. and, and yeah, actually Ooh. flipping it upside down. And, and that's actually, so, so when we see the goodness of the Lord, what we see is that he is putting on, he's putting death on parade and yes. And, 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 Absolutely. and that from that death actually comes new life. And that's, that's what, yes. that's what we're invited into. And like, so he's saying, he's like, so you may even see death in the crucifixion, but what is actually coming is life and that you can actually participate, take up your cross daily and follow me. And, and, yeah. and, and that is, that's real. And, yeah. and, and, and if you eat that, then you're going to have food for the journey. Yes. And, and the, at least my last point, what he's doing is in doing all of that and giving them the food for the journey and, and reconciling all these things through himself, that last line, he says, unlike, he said, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died. In other words, the manna, they ate bread. It was great. It was wonderful. But they all died. Yep. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And that, that term, the expression will live forever, will live forever, I think, to my knowledge, only appears three times in the entire Bible. Oh. The idea of living for, will live forever. And the three times are here, t twice here, once in verse 51, uh, once in verse 58, and the only other time it appears in the Bible, to my knowledge, is in the Greek version of Genesis 3.22 which is the fruit that actually brought death. The serpent said, if you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you will live forever. They ate something, their eyes were opened, and their eyes were opened to death and destruction and corruption and chaos. Jesus is taking the exact same terminology, yeah. the idea of living forever, and he's applying it now not to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the fruit of his body, which will hang from the tree of the cross, in a couple of, uh, well, probably a couple, two years from this point when he's saying, I don't know what the timeline. Yeah. But he's, he's using this term, or John is actually using this term to describe what Jesus is saying in a very distinct way to show precisely that Jesus is undoing precisely what our ancestors did. He's using this bread that has come down from heaven, not to just merely give us phys physical sustenance, yep. which it does. You talked in your homily last week about certain saints who literally lived only on the Eucharist because this bread actually has that power and that, that supernatural life in it. That's, that's a possibility for certain people who have been given that grace. Yeah. But not only that is that this bread is going to undo precisely the entire story of salvation history which is man walking away from God constantly, the story that has been, been spanning through the entirety of the Bible, yeah. it will undo this tree, this fruit hanging from a different tree is going to undo what Adam and Eve did from the fruit hanging from the first tree. Yes. And I think that's what that line just absolutely drives home. And that, if we have the, the strength to tap into it, that's true wisdom. Because that's understanding God through the things that are. He's made himself incarnate and manifest through his creation. And we can actually, we get to ingest, we get to eat his creation, which is him, in order to bring us to everlasting life, which is just an amazing concept. That's wisdom, though, personified. Yeah. 
And my, and my last point is this, is that uh, the seven pillars that were set up by wisdom, the, 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 we can see very clearly in sacramental life, and that that Eucharist, what you're just speaking of, is the, the source as well as the capstone. It's the peak of the mountain and the base. It is from which everything else, where matter is actually transformed entirely, and that's what's so glorious. So, But why seven? I mean, I mean, we kind of mentioned it earlier, both covenant as well as, I mean, I don't know why seven. I mean, that's confusing. Well, why is seven the covenant? But why is seven the covenant number? I'm sorry, this, is a, I'm, this isn't a rhetorical question. Why? Why does the church have seven sacraments? Why are there seven pillars? Because seven represents completion. So it's exactly what you just said. He is completing all of this. He's bringing it all to its perfection, to its completion. Right. That's why we have seven sacraments. That's why there's seven pillars, because it's pointing toward the time when God is going to bring this to its to its fullness. Bread is going to this meal that wisdom is preparing is pointing ahead to Jesus, who is going to give us the totality of everything human humans could want and need, which will bring us the complete everlasting life. Which brings us to completion in our podcast today. Oh, well done, yeah, Father Peter. God bless you all. We, um, we love you, and um, uh, may you prepare yourself fully for the Eucharist this weekend. Indeed. We will see you next week. Okay. God bless you all. Ta-ta. Ta-ta for now.